You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. As essential to the nature of Jesus as anything that we've been discussing over the past few months in our series on uh, Christology is that uh, Jesus as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus as the one who is one with God the Father, as the scriptures tell us, and who identified himself as I am, which was a name that God chose for himself in the Old Testament. Jesus as the one that Paul identifies as the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is not only all of those things, but he's also human. Somehow in Jesus, the eternal one has taken on flesh and blood. Um, As high and holy as he is, he has also become one of us. Paul says it plainly in 1 Timothy chapter 2 when he writes, For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus himself human. Paul asserts that Jesus, as mediator between God and man, as the one who demonstrates what it looks like when heaven and earth are brought together, Jesus is able to act as a mediator because he is both human and divine. Now, for those of us who grew up in the church, this may be a concept that we take for granted and really never give much thought to. Um, you know, it's, it's a complex uh, idea, and it's a significant idea uh, for those of us who... Uh, follow after Christ, for those of us who claim to be believers in Christ, that he was both human and divine. Uh, But for other people, for those of us who have have been in the church, it may be uh, something that we don't give a lot of thought to, but for other people, this is a concept that's not only hard to grasp, but it also oftentimes creates a barrier to their being able to accept the gospel. It's not only hard to understand as a reality, but the reasoning reasoning behind it is also hard to process. I can remember discussing the humanity and the deity of Jesus with uh, an Islamic family that I lived with in Indonesia. Uh, They just couldn't grasp it. It didn't make any sense in their context of how they understood God. It was unfathomable in their view of God as this high and holy one who's separated from humanity, or in their view of God as one who's completely sovereign over humanity. It was unfathomable first that he could or would ever want to become human. And second, with regard to his crucifixion, it was unfathomable that uh, beyond becoming human, he would then allow himself to be mistreated and put to death as the Gospels proclaim him to have been, that, that he would take on the heaviest burdens of humanity, so to speak. It was unfathomable that the one who's supreme over all the universe would go that far to identify with humanity at all, much less to identify with those humans who are uh, most ostracized or those who suffer the most. Maybe, Maybe you've got some of those same difficulties with the humanity of Jesus, understanding why God would do that or why it was necessary. And so this morning we're going to turn our attention not to Jesus as God or Jesus as Son of God or any of those other high and holy titles that are ascribed to him in the scriptures, but instead this morning we're going to talk about Jesus the man. Of all the passages that explain the humanity of Jesus, the one that's probably most familiar to us is what John writes in the first chapter of his gospel, and we're going to start there this morning and then we'll move uh, pretty quickly into the book of Hebrews for the rest of our time together this morning. But John opens his gospel with a discussion of the Word of God, and it's a familiar passage. We'll get right to it. Verses 1 through 3 of John chapter 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And so John establishes that the word was in the it was with God in the beginning. He's eternal, in other words, this one that is referred to as the word of God. He establishes, John does, that the word was responsible for creation. Nothing was made without the word, John says. And he establishes also that the word was divine. He says the word was God. Then from there, as he moves on a little bit later on in that passage, in verses 12 through 13, he goes on to speak of how the eternal word gives all flesh or all of humanity the opportunity to become children of God. In verses 12 and 13, he writes, But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so there's this idea in John chapter 1 that the Word of God gives humanity, or those who have flesh and blood, the Word of God gives us the opportunity to enter into a unique type of relationship with God. He allows us, John says, to become children of God. He bridges the divide between the human and the divine. He brings together He brings those two together by giving humanity not the opportunity to become divine itself, but by giving humanity the opportunity to become children of the divine. This, in John's gospel, seems to be the point of what God is setting out to do in the world. The oneness between heaven and earth, the oneness between humanity and the divine that was undone by sin and death is being recreated through this one who's identified by John as the word of God. And he starts again by saying that all who believe in him or all who give their allegiance to him, if you remember our discussion from a number of weeks ago, the discussion of the word pistis or pisteo, which is actually used here in this passage. But John says that all who believe or all who give their allegiance to this one who's identified as the word of God are given the opportunity to become children of God. If you jump ahead toward uh, the end of of the uh, gospel of John, in the next to the last chapter, in chapter 20, he wraps up or begins to wrap up what he's saying about Jesus in this way. He says, but these are written, all of these things that I'm writing about Jesus in my gospel are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. And so John's aiming his gospel at encouraging the belief or at encouraging the giving of the allegiance that results in our becoming children of God, that results in the bringing together of human and divine. But if we go back to the first chapter, as John continues writing there in verses 14 through 18, he gets at how the word begins to work to bring about this union between heaven and earth. Again, these words are familiar. John 114. The Word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Indeed, we have all received grace after grace from His fullness. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. And so as John gets at the purpose of Jesus taking on flesh, his primary point, at least in the first chapter of his gospel, seems to be that by coming in flesh, Jesus' purpose or Jesus' intention was on a a grander scale to bridge the gap between humanity and the divine, 
or to bring union, so to speak, between heaven and earth. But that grand purpose begins by the Word of God taking on flesh for the express purpose of revealing to flesh what God is like. Jesus invites those of us who have flesh to become like God, at least in some sense. He invites us to become children of God, and we we know within the greater context of the Scriptures that becoming children of God means that we become like God in certain respects. Paul, for example, in Ephesians chapter 4, says that we become like God in true righteousness and holiness. Uh, The idea, I think, in the Scriptures is that God originally created humanity to be an expression of His image, and, and Jesus sets out to restore that image in its fullness in us. He invites us through recreation to be renewed into who God originally created us to be. But John points out in John chapter 1 that Jesus initiates this invitation to become like God, or he initiates this invitation for us to become children of God by coming in flesh himself, first of all, to show us what God is actually like. I mean, it's great to talk about becoming like God, but if we never knew what God was like, what would that mean? And so he comes to reveal that to us. Prior to Jesus, the law of Moses had been given as a demonstration of God's character. And there was revelation of the nature and the will of God within the law of Moses. That's why in Romans chapter 7, Paul calls the law holy, righteous, and good. It did reveal something of the nature and the will of God. Um, The prophets had further revealed the nature and the will of God by calling God's people back to the law when that was appropriate, or by calling God's people away from a misunderstanding or a misapplication of the law when that was appropriate. But Jesus, John makes clear, Jesus comes to reveal what God is like in a way that's complete. Jesus comes to reveal what God is like in a way that it could actually be observed and engaged beyond that which was possible by the law and the prophets. Jesus literally put skin and bone on the nature and the will and the character of the king of the universe. John says it this way as he opens his first uh, letter. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so John goes out of his way to point out that the word of life has appeared And because of his appearance, because we've finally been able to see and touch and hear and observe exactly what God is like, we're able to have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Again, John seems to be returning to the theme that's introduced in the first chapter of his gospel, that by becoming flesh and blood, Jesus is bringing together the human and the divine. He's bringing together heaven and earth. Where there had previously been alienation because of sin and death, there's now the opportunity for renewal, and John uses the word fellowship. Now, with that said, I want us to leave John. I want us to jump over to the book of Hebrews. And the reason I want us to go over to the book of Hebrews is because really the author of Hebrews deals with the humanity of Jesus as much as any other New Testament author. He also, like John, seems to be emphasizing the bringing together of God and man. He identifies Jesus in the book of Hebrews as our great high priest, 
whose role it is, first of all, to represent man to God, but also whose role it is to represent God to man. His letter seems to be written with that role of Jesus, his role as high priest being preeminent in the mind of the author of Hebrews. But he actually begins right where John leaves off at the end of the first chapter of his gospel. John closes the first chapter of his gospel by pointing out uh, that Jesus as flesh and blood has revealed the Father to us. Look at how the author of Hebrews begins when he writes his letter, uh, verses 1 through 3 of Hebrews chapter 1. The author of Hebrews introduces his letter this way. He says, Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir over all things, or sorry, heir of all things, and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, if we were to continue to read the the first two chapters of the book of Hebrews, we'd see that the author of Hebrews goes on to speak of God bringing his firstborn into the world, And he says that his firstborn was made a little lower than the angels. Now, that phrase, made a little lower than the angels, actually is taken from Psalm chapter 8. We're not going to go back and read Psalm chapter 8 this morning. But if you did go back and read Psalm chapter 8, you'd see that Psalm chapter 8 is very distinctly about uh, humanity. It's it's talking about humanity. And so, um, although he doesn't speak specifically right here of Jesus taking on flesh and blood, as John does in the opening chapter of his gospel, there's certainly a strong allusion as the author of Hebrews opens his letter uh, to Jesus's humanity. And again, the idea is that by taking on flesh, Jesus is revealing God to man in a way that he hadn't previously been revealed to man. In the past, God had revealed himself through the law and the prophets, and that was great. Uh, There was great benefit for the Jewish people in receiving the law and the prophets. But as great as that was, there was something incomplete about that revelation. There was something about God that couldn't be communicated through the spoken word or through the written word as it was given through the law and the prophets. If you know me at all, uh, you know that I'm not a particularly handy guy. Um, I've not spent a lot of time in my life learning to fix things. My dad was a a pastor and my grandpas were both pastors. And pastors, if you haven't noticed, they're not good at uh, fixing things. We don't do mechanical things. We usually depend upon somebody in the church. Um, But I'm not uh, particularly mechanical. And for that reason, um, when I have something go wrong at the house, whenever Becky wants to do something uh, new at the house, which seems a little bit too frequently to me, um, uh, but whenever something of that nature happens that requires some level of mechanical competence, I usually either phone a friend or if it's a really serious thing, I, I phone a professional. Uh, now, more recently, in the past few years, two or three years since we moved into our house out here, I've attempted some little things around the house, like uh, putting up new light fixtures um, in the kitchen and the bathroom. That sounds probably simple to some of you guys, but I was really proud of myself uh, when I was able to do that for the first time. But I, I did that because I wanted to develop at least some of... Some of you guys are laughing at me. That makes me feel bad. Um, I, I at least wanted to develop some of those those handyman skills. I didn't want to be totally useless. And I, um, I wanted to save money as well. I'm a, I try to be a frugal guy. Uh, but one of the things that I discovered as I was trying to learn how to do that, changing lights in particular, was that reading the instructions, uh, while it may be sufficient for someone who 
uh, has experience with these things, or while it may be sufficient for somebody that's smarter than I am, it was almost totally worthless to me. Um, I could read how to do something, and I could even think for a minute that I understood how I was going to do it, but inevitably, once I'd try to put it into practice, I'd end up doing it wrong, or, or something would get lost in translation so that I wouldn't even feel comfortable attempting it as I was reading through the instructions. And what I usually end up doing is calling my good buddy Brian over there, and uh, Brian comes over and he does it for me. Um, and I'm grateful to Brian for that. But actually, there's, there's an advantage to having Brian come and help me um, in, in addition to just getting work done for free and getting it done pretty well. That's great, too. But uh, the advantage has been that as I've watched Brian do some of those things, and Brian, don't, don't belittle me here in front of everybody, but as I've watched Brian do some of those things that I'm not good at, I've actually learned to do a few of those things uh, myself. Uh, what I began to discover is that if I could watch someone do it, if, if the instructions could take on flesh and blood, so to speak, I was at least able to figure it out a little bit better than I was able to figure it out by just reading. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm a handy guy. Um, I still call Brian on occasion, especially when I have a toilet to fix. Uh, I call Brian. Uh, but I still have a deficiency when it comes to uh, mechanical competency. But if I can observe it, if I can see it in a context instead of just as words on a page, I can understand it in a way that I wasn't previously able to understand it. Now, I know that's not a perfect analogy, but in some sense, that relates to the difference between how Yahweh was able to be understood through the law and the prophets and how Yahweh is now able to be understood because of the appearance of Jesus. When the law and the prophets were the primary way of understanding God, the people of Israel were able to, to hear about God, but they misinterpreted much of what he was like because they hadn't seen him. They hadn't observed him. And consequently, there were many things about God that they either didn't grasp at all or that they totally misunderstood. But now in Jesus, the author of Hebrews says that God has revealed the exact nature of his being. In Jesus, John says, God has taken up residence among us. In Jesus, God has revealed what, it's, what he's like in a context that we can understand and appreciate because it is our very context. He showed us what his character is like when it's lived out in our shoes. And the author of Hebrews will go on to point out how because this is the case, we need to give our attention to Jesus even above the law and the prophets because of what he reveals in his incarnation about who God is and what God is like. See, and this was hard, hard for me to come to terms with for some time because I grew up with a very high respect for the word of God, but the implication of the scriptures is that Jesus reveals God in a way that even the law and the prophets could not. That's why the author of Hebrews will say over and over again and he's, as he's writing his letter, make sure that you don't harden your hearts to this guy. He's the one who reveals perfectly the nature and the will of God. There is no other, there is nothing else that perfectly reveals the nature and character of God other than Jesus himself. But then even in alluding to the humanity of Jesus as a superior revelation of God, there's an indication in the opening verses of Hebrews that there was something more to the, to the humanity of Jesus than just him being a perfect revelation of God's nature and God's will. Look again at verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 1. He says there again, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And then he says, 
after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so the author of Hebrews points out that not only has the Son come to reveal what God is like in a way that hadn't been possible prior to him taking up residence among us, but beyond that, the author of Hebrews indicates that while he was in... Now, as we consider the necessity of Jesus' humanity and what it has to do with our pur- the purification of sins, it's appropriate for us, I think, to go over to Romans chapter 8 and give our attention to what Paul says there for a couple of minutes. In Romans chapter 8, Paul describes the role of Jesus' flesh in purifying us from our sins. And he, he says this, and we're going to work our way through this, um, so uh, give me a couple minutes here. But he says, a, a very familiar passage, there, therefore, now, uh, sorry, therefore no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus, because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, since it was limited by flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in flesh like ours under sin's domain and as a sin offering in order that the law's requirements would be accomplished in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, there's a lot of theology behind this passage that we can't really address this morning, but the main idea here that I want us at least to give our attention to for the time being is that prior to the advent of Jesus, Paul makes it clear that all flesh was under what he calls the the domain of sin. A little earlier in Romans chapter 5, Paul reminds us that this has been the case since the time of Adam. Verses 12 through 14 of Romans chapter 5, he writes, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all men because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account, when there is no law. Nevertheless, look at the language, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. And so again, there's a lot that we could talk about from this passage if we had time, but what I want us to come away with from Romans chapter 5 is that sin, and Paul seems to suggest that in some way both our individual personal sin and also the sin of Adam, but sin placed us in a predicament in, when, in which we live not only under the domain of sin, which is what he talks about in Romans chapter 8 in that passage that we just read, but here in chapter 5, Paul also indicates that because of living under the domain of sin, we also lived under the reign of death. That's why we talk about the reign of sin and death so frequently here. It's a scriptural concept. The, the idea here is that there has been introduced into our world a kingdom that operates in opposition to the kingdom of God. Um, it has corrupted creation. It has corrupted humanity, the scripture suggests. It has corrupted the union between heaven and earth, along with the union that existed between humanity and the divine. And Paul suggests that when we were under the reign of this alternative kingdom, we were trapped. We were in a predicament. Being under the dominion of sin and death, all flesh, the implication is, all flesh stood under the condemnation that has been assigned to sin and death, and we were helpless to remove ourselves from that domain, and so consequently we were helpless to remove ourselves from that condemnation that was due the kingdom of sin and death. Now, if we jump back over to Romans chapter 8, Paul points out there that the law, despite the fact that it was given for the purpose of revealing something about the nature and the will of God, Paul points out that the law was inadequate to set man free from his predicament. 
The law couldn't do anything about removing the dominion of sin and death over flesh. And Paul specifically says there that the law was limited by the flesh. It couldn't, in other words, deal with the burden that had been imposed on flesh or deal with the burden that had been imposed on humanity because the law was not itself flesh. And the implication of what Paul says there, I wish he said it outright, it'd be a lot easier to understand, but the implication of what Paul says there in Romans chapter 8 is that in order to bear the burden that was imposed on flesh and blood, something or someone had to come in the form of flesh and blood. Because it wasn't flesh and blood, the law was not subject to death. Only flesh and blood could die, and so only flesh and blood could take on the actual reign of death. Likewise, only flesh and blood could sin, or only flesh and blood could be tempted to sin, and so only flesh and blood could take on the domain of sin. And so for that reason, what does God do? In order to bear the burden that flesh and blood is under, the Father sends Jesus as flesh and blood. In order to destroy the dominion that sin and death had, over flesh since the time of Adam, in Jesus, God takes on flesh. He bears the burden of flesh. Look again at Romans 8, verse 3. What the law could not do since it was limited by flesh, or since it was not flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending His own Son in flesh like ours under sin's domain and as a sin offering. What Paul's getting at is that by becoming flesh, Jesus was able to bear the burden of flesh. He takes on sin and death by submitting himself to the condemnation or by submitting himself to the death that flesh was under. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2.9 that Jesus, again, was made a little lower than the angels or he was made human for a short time so that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone. And the point there is that Jesus became flesh so that he might bear the burden of all humanity by dying. By becoming flesh, he took on the kingdom that had set itself up in opposition to God's kingdom. He took on the the corruption that rested on creation and humanity and, and the alienation that existed between heaven and earth and between humanity and the divine because of the reign of sin and death. He took all of that on, allowing himself to die. And of course, ultimately, he conquers death or he conquers the reign of sin and death by in the flesh rising from the dead. And so Paul implies that in this way, we're able to be released from sin's dominion. There's no longer, we're no longer under condemnation, or as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1, we're purified from our sins. And yet in discussing the humanity of Jesus, the author of Hebrews is still not done. He, he goes even further. Jesus doesn't just reveal the exact nature of God, nor does he just taste death and conquer sin and death on our behalf, That would certainly be enough if that was all that Jesus did or all that Jesus accomplished by taking on flesh. But as the author of Hebrews continues in chapter 4, he goes on to say this. He says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, before we look at this third aspect of, uh, or the third purpose, rather, of Jesus taking on flesh and blood, I want to acknowledge that there are some theological issues presented here that I can't fully explain and I don't fully understand. For example, if if God is all-knowing, um, if he knows if he knows me and you in the way that the psalmist suggests that he knows us in Psalm 139, then why was it necessary for Jesus to come in the flesh and actually experience my weaknesses in order for him to be able to empathize with me? Couldn't God just know what it was like to be human because he knows everything? I can't answer that. <laughs> um, but as I've pondered this aspect of Jesus' humanity, the conclusion that I've come to is that with regard to this third purpose of the incarnation mentioned by the author of Hebrews, maybe the real point isn't so much about God being able to understand my plight as one who wears flesh and blood. Maybe the point of Jesus taking on flesh and blood isn't so much about an all-knowing God being able to understand me. Maybe, and I don't know this for sure, but maybe it's more about me being able to understand and appreciate that the king of the universe is truly able to empathize with me. Maybe God takes on flesh so that I, in my moments of skepticism, particularly in the midst of my weaknesses or in the midst of my suffering, maybe the real point is that in those moments, I can understand with certainty that the God to whom I pray, the God to whom the scriptures say I will give an account, the God who created me and disciplines me, has actually stooped down in his great love and put on flesh and blood himself. Maybe God wanted me to know when I'm experiencing the worst that the reign of sin and death has to offer. Maybe he wanted me to know when I'm facing temptation or loss or pain or suffering that he has actually been right where I am and that ultimately he has overcome on my behalf. In the most difficult challenges of my life, one of the greatest comforts to me has been not that other people could offer me good advice. Don't you hate that when people try to offer you good advice when you're hurting? <laughs> good advice has its advantages, and I don't want to discredit that. But when, I, when I've been in the middle of the darkest periods of my life, the greatest comfort has come from simply being able to weep with those that I knew understood my pain because they had been in my shoes. The greatest comfort has come from just being in the presence of those who understood and could weep with me, either literally or figuratively, because they empathized with me. In fact, I think, I think personally that there is no, the scriptures are talking about fellowship. Personally, I think there is no greater fellowship than that which is experienced when we weep with one another in that way. Perhaps you can relate to that. Maybe you've experienced the comfort of weeping with someone who's been in your shoes, or maybe you've experienced the comfort of of weeping with someone who understood your hurt. If you have, isn't it wonderful to know that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords has allowed himself to be put in that position? He did not have to. But he allowed himself to be put in a position where he was able to suffer as you suffer. Where he was able to be tempted as you're tempted. Where he's able to face what you face, and that now the scriptures tell us as, as one who knows where we have been, he lives to intercede for us. The author of Hebrews points out this aspect of the humanity of Jesus, and he says this ought to be a, a source of great confidence for us. After reminding us 
just a verse earlier in, in Hebrews 4.12, that everything is going to be uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account, which in all honesty can sometimes be a very scary thought. God, think about this, God sees everything I've ever done. He knows every thought I've ever had. He's heard every word I've ever said. I am naked and exposed before him. That's the, the language that the author of Hebrews uses, just one verse before this passage that we read a moment ago. But after making it cl that clear, make, after making it clear that God sees and knows everything about us, the author of Hebrews in the very next verses closes that, that section by saying that although we're naked and exposed, we can still be confident because Jesus, our great high priest, is able to sympathize or empathize with us by virtue of the fact that he has literally been where we are. The God of heaven and earth in Christ has lived the life of flesh and blood. As we read in that passage from Hebrews chapter 4, within the context of the book of Hebrews, all of this discussion about the humanity of Jesus is understood within the context of Jesus being our great high priest. The author of Hebrews unlocks the complexities of Jesus' humanity by pointing out that as this one who's tasted and conquered death on our behalf, as the one who's been tempted just as we are, yet was without sin, as the one who's been able to identify with us in our suffering and is actually sacrificed in order to bear our burden, as this one who's revealed to us what God is like in the flesh, as all of these things, the author of Hebrews points out, that Jesus has become our great high priest. And within the book of Hebrews, there's certainly the idea that all of these roles that Jesus fulfills as our great high priest have benefits for us. They create a basis for us to know and to be known by the maker and sustainer of the universe. They create a basis for us to approach God with confidence because now we know what he's like and we know that he knows what it's like to be us. They create a basis for us to have confidence to know that our burden's been taken away by his sacrifice and to know that we have one on our side who's sitting before the throne of God, which the author of Hebrews identifies not as a throne of judgment and hatred, but as a throne of, throne of grace. I think that's uh, an interesting idea within the context there, saying that God knows everything that we've ever done, but he reigns from a throne of grace. But we know because of Jesus taking on flesh and blood that we have one sitting before God's throne who understands our plight. The high priesthood of Jesus or the humanity of Jesus is certainly for our benefit. The, the author of Hebrews presents it so. And yet, there's also the indication in the Scriptures that beyond just interceding for us, Jesus, as our high priest, is inviting us into a type of priesthood ourselves. In a sense, he invites us to participate in the ministry that he's taken on by becoming flesh and blood. Our priesthood is inferior to his, of course, but it's still a significant part of the identity that he invites us into as his followers. 1 Peter chapter 2 Peter's writing about our priesthood, and he says this. He says, coming to him, speaking of Jesus, coming to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but chosen and valuable to God, you yourselves as living stones are being built into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
And so there's the indication here that while we don't offer blood as the high priest did in the Old Testament or as Jesus did as our great high priest, we do as priests offer a type of sacrifice. Peter calls it a spiritual sacrifice. Paul in Romans chapter 12 calls it a living sacrifice. And although he doesn't use the language of priesthood in Romans chapter 12, there's a description in chapters 12 through 15 of Romans in particular of how we carry out the intensely practical duties of our priesthood. Paul encourages us in that section, for example, as we read earlier, to weep with those who weep. He encourages us to pursue hospitality and to associate with the humble. He talks about blessing those who who persecute us and accepting one another just as the Messiah has accepted us. There's an exhortation in the 14th chapter for us to pursue peace and that which builds each other up. And all of these exhortations and many others are spoken, spoken of within the context of the living sacrifice imagery. This, in other words, I think Paul is saying, this is what it looks like to live as priests. These are our living or our spiritual sacrifices as this holy priesthood that Peter says we've become. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, after he speaks of the holy priesthood and the, the spiritual sacrifices that we offer as priests, Peter says in that familiar passage from verses 9 and 10 that we've been using, we read even this morning as part of a proclamation of, of who we are. We've been reading it over the past several months. But within that context, Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Although he doesn't say it overtly, certainly the implication here is that in some sense, Jesus is calling us to be to the world what he actually is to the world. As his followers, we are participating in his priestly ministry. If we take 1 Peter chapter 2 and Romans chapter 12 and the book of Hebrews all together, we begin to see that tied into this concept of our becoming a royal priesthood is the idea that we actually act on behalf of others in the same way that Jesus has acted on our behalf. We're, we're made a holy priesthood, in other words, so that we can serve after the pattern of our great high priest. And all of this has implications for how we approach the table. It could be said that in a very real sense, the table is designed to remind us of the things that we've talked about this morning. The table reminds us, for instance, in a very vivid way that the King of kings and Lord of lords took on flesh and blood. It reminds us in a very vivid way, we hold it with our hands, that the Word of God became human. It reminds us that in becoming human, He served as our great high priest. The table reminds us that as our great high priest, He reveals to us what God is like in a way that we had never previously been able to know. It reminds us as our great high priest, as one who has lived the life of flesh and blood, that he understands our plight. He's been in our shoes. He's suffered as we suffer. He's experienced pain and disappointment and sadness and loss and temptation just as we experience those things. The table reminds us that by taking on flesh and blood, he bore our burden. 
He bore sin and death in our stead. The table calls our attention to the flesh and blood of our great high priest. But in doing so, the table also reminds us that in serving as our great high priest, Jesus has invited us into a priesthood ourselves. And it is a priesthood that is patterned after his own. Our priesthood as well is one that is meant to reveal to those who observe us the nature and the will of our maker and redeemer. Our priesthood is one that takes up residence among those who suffer so that we might be present with them in the midst of their pain and their disappointment and their loss. Our priesthood is one that bears the burdens of those who are hungry and thirsty and naked and sick and imprisoned along with those who remain under the reign of sin and death. Our priesthood is one that empathizes with others and then moves to meet their needs. Such is the ministry of our great high priest. And such is our ministry as his followers.